Welcome everyone. Today we have with us Sergey who is my co-author with teachyourselfcrypto.com, the best course on the internet for someone who wants to learn about Bitcoin, Ethereum, smart contracts, privacy coins, DeFi, etc. The course is completely free and both the authors are here to talk with you today. Sergey is an aerospace engineer by education, but he self-taught himself software engineering. He has worked at Amazon before. He has worked at MathWorks and currently he's working at eBay. So this guy knows software engineering, he's an expert and he self-taught it to himself and f- he taught it to himself good enough to find a job at Amazon. So today we're going to talk about how you can do the same thing. How can you get a job at a Fang company? Fang is Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, there's one more A whose name I forgot. G is Google. So Sergey, how are you doing? What is the AI missed? And can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Yeah, thank you Harsh. Uh, thank you for for having me. Very good. So the other A is Apple. And, Apple, yes. Uh, yeah. And yeah, very good. Yeah, so it's pretty accurate. So I I don't have a computer science degree. I studied aerospace engineering. I started programming about 10 years ago, a bit more. And I went from, as I said, aerospace engineering to uh, my first job at MathWorks, where I couldn't become a full developer because I didn't have enough enough experience. So um, I was part-time doing technical support, and the other half of my time I was spent developing. From there, I moved to Amazon, where I was developing Alexa in -hmm. a couple of teams. And then from there um, to my current job here at eBay, where now I do more DevOps. Um, But yeah, that that has been my, my path. Interesting. So for someone who wants to do the same thing, firstly, why is Fang so well known, say, compared to other tech companies like Uber or Palantir or what have you? Yeah, so now Fang has actually um, extended itself, the acronym, to Fang-like companies. And those companies that you mentioned, uh, they tend to be included. And they are known because, uh, well, the compensation they provide is good. Usually the working environment is also very good. Uh, the work you do there is challenging. You are surrounded by very smart people, which is very nice. You you learn a lot, um, and then it also helps you build an impressive CV um, that is going to make it easier for you in the future to get other jobs, or if you want to start your company to convince other people to join. Uh, just to give you an example, mm-hmm. I got um, multiple times recruiters on LinkedIn. And they talk to me and they try to convince me to join their company, of course. And they usually mention, um, in our company, we have three guys from Google, two girls from Amazon, and so many people from Facebook. And so it's working in a FANG is a seal of approval now, nowadays. So it's like the new, I went to Harvard, you know? Mm. How come Microsoft isn't in the FANG companies? Is it like no longer as relevant or what is the deal? So I think the whole Fang thing um, is from the stocks. Uh, so it's the uh, most valuable stocks, and Microsoft apparently is not up there. But the company itself is also one of the companies that every developer wants to join. So uh, in my time at Amazon, for example, I met a few engineers who used to work at uh, Microsoft. And now when I look back on the people that I met there on LinkedIn, uh, many of them are working now for Microsoft. So yeah, it's, it's also uh, one of the top companies. Mm, I see. So what are these fang companies actually looking for in an employee? Because if it was just a degree, then you wouldn't be able to get in because you don't have a degree in software engineering. So what is 
the real criteria? What are you looking for? Because I know that you mentioned earlier, even before, like right before you said that you have conducted interviews before, right? Like before the call. So what is a fan company looking for in an employee? Yeah, so basically, and this will sound very obvious, but it is not. They want someone who can provide value and who can give the customers what they want, uh, not what the developer wants to do. That's, that's a separate thing. So you need to be able to build a system that people want. And then in the future, you have to maintain it. You need to scale it also, uh, because we are talking about companies with, uh, in the case of Facebook, for, for example, billions of users. Mm-hmm. So you need to know how to scale systems. Uh, you need to know how to extend the system so that more people can use it or it has more functionality. Or maybe Facebook acquires a different company and now you have to uh, combine the source codes um, and the systems, etc. So you need, you need to be good at system design as I said, how to scale a system, uh, how to make the, sure that the system is uh, resilient. So, you know, when every time Facebook goes down, which doesn't happen very often, everyone freaks out. So you need to know what to do in those cases and what to do to prevent those situations. That way it doesn't happen uh, often because a lot of thought is put into preventing these situations. Uh, but yeah, so these are some skills you need to have. Object-oriented programming is also... Um, it's, it's a good idea, it's how to organize your code, even though there are other paradigms. Uh, it's a coding paradigm that is, um, that is very common. Uh, how, to write click, clean, sorry, how to write clean code, uh, code that is readable and testable and tested and maintainable, etc. Uh, because as I said, it's part of your time is going to be building new stuff, but most of the time you're going to be looking at old stuff, either to fix it or to extend it. So you need to know how to write clean code. And also, and especially when you get to a more mature um, level in your career, uh, you need to be a team player and a leader, especially the more senior you are, uh, the more mm-hmm. you have to interact with people from other teams. Uh, so you are expected to lead projects completely. And if you get blocked, uh, you cannot just stay in your cubicle or nowadays at home stuck. Uh, you need to go and find the people who can help you and you have to move the, uh, the thing forward. So Technically, going to uni for computer science or for aerospace or whatever is not going to teach you any of those individually. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a bunch of skills that if you go to uni, of course, you're going to learn many of them. Uh, but you can just learn, learn them or your own or uh, maybe in other jobs and they can transfer. So, yes, if you ask me, is it necessary to have a degree in computer science? No, because I don't have one. Um, I have met people without a degree. I have met people only with bachelor's degree, with his three years only, and um, and I think it, it's it's completely possible. It is true though that getting the first interview is going to be harder because you don't have that kind of seal of approval of I went to uni and I sort of know um, what I'm doing. But once you get the experience, uh, it's not so relevant anymore. So that's why I think. Yeah, it's true that having a degree, and if you have the time, yeah, go ahead and, and get the degree because it's going to help you understand algorithms and think analytically and methodically, etc. But if you don't, the best thing you can do is get started as soon as you can and get into the industry as soon as you can because that way you get experience. And then from there, you can decide whether you want to start switching jobs to get pay raises or where, if you want to go straight to a fan company, which is uh, something that I would recommend. Interesting you mentioned about switching jobs because I have heard of a phrase before. It's called VIP, where it's called vesting in peace. Okay. Where the, I haven't heard that. The guy is just waiting for his you know, stock options to mature. 
I, I think I remembered reading this, reading about this in Chaos Monkeys by this guy called Antonio Martinez or something. I forget his name. Pretty cool book. So, Sergio, if someone had to say teach himself everything they need to know from scratch, what do they actually need to know? What is the most important stuff they need to learn, say, from a technical perspective, to actually be qualified to work at a fan company? Yeah, so I would say that getting a job at a fan company, um, there are two different skill sets that you need to develop, and they are they are doable. I mean, anyone can can do this. On the one side, you have the hard skills. So you need to learn programming. Um, usually for the interviews, for example, you can pick the programming language you want. Python, it's uh, it's a very common choice. You also need to be good at data structures and algorithms. The more senior you are, the more you need to know about more advanced computer science, like um, multi-threading and these sort of things. And even for junior positions, it's good if you know about system designs. So the thing I, I mentioned earlier where... Uh, you need to know how to scale a system and how to make it fall tolerant and if a computer goes down, uh, what happens, etc. So not, not everything breaks. So that's one thing. But then the interview process itself, uh, this requires some skills. So this reminds me of um, like 10 or 12 years ago when, when I was studying to get a certificate in English because I needed it to uh, for some uni-related stuff. I got the advanced level, so in a scale of six levels, let's say, I got the fifth, which was supposed to be advanced. And then I found, uh, I was playing basketball and some American games came, and I could not understand anything, even though my level was advanced. Um, one thing is preparing for the exam, another thing is learning English, or vice versa. One thing is knowing English, and one, another different thing is passing the exam. So here it's kind of similar. You can know all these things, but if you want to get a job, you need to prepare more stuff. Like your communication skills have to be good because um, we are evaluating the way you think. And if you stay silent, there's nothing to evaluate. And we cannot help you if you are start if you start thinking about the wrong solution. We cannot help you. So you need to be good at explaining what you're doing while you're doing it, and how, and especially why you're doing it. You also need to be very fast because you're going to have to solve one or two problems depending on the company in about an hour. And you need to, uh, we'll, we can discuss this later, how to approach these problems, but you may need to come up with more than one solution, analyze it, and then write the code, etc. So it's a challenging environment. Plus, you also have behavioral questions. Um, so it's a skill itself, passing the interview. I see. But say, for example, there's a student and he wants to learn the bare minimum at least. So what courses should he take? For example, should he take calculus, discrete math? Can you recommend us, like, can you tell us, like, what are the topics he needs to learn about in specific so he can, like, just Google it and look for resources? Sure. Sure. So you would need to learn one programming language. Um, as I said, I recommend Python because for beginners, it's relatively easy to learn. And mm -hmm. in an interview setting, it's also good because the syntax is very short. So if you want to write the same function in Python and in Java, let's say in Java, you're going to need mm, many more lines of code, which translates to more time uh, during the interview and you don't have a lot. So Python is one of the things that you should learn. Also data structures and algorithms, and there are tons of books out there, and even like you can find on YouTube playlists you where they explain you. Uh, I've got some books that I recommend on my website. Um, they are a bit more math heavy, as in they go through the proofs and all that. But on YouTube, you can find lots of uh, probably Indian teachers, and they will teach you everything you need to know about data structures and, and algorithms. 
So uh, there's a guy called Tim Roughgarden who has a pretty good course on Coursera. That, yeah, the guy from Stanford, a bold guy. Is it? Is it him? Yeah, Tim Roughgarden. Yeah, I took his course. Uh, I like it a lot. But yeah, there will be some math. You can skip that part if you want. Um, is the math not important? No, it's not that. So uh, the, I think you have to learn, um, let's say, in layers. So the first layer is what is this guy teaching me? Like, what is this data structure doing? And then you can go a bit deeper and say, okay, why is this better? So maybe you can get an intuition why binary search is better than linear scan, for example. Mm -hmm. And then you can go another deep, uh, another level, and then you go into the math. So why is this better, mathematically speaking? Uh, the third layer, you can skip it for now. And even during, in an interview, you're going to need to be able to analyze algorithms. But in a, if you want to learn everything at the same time, you're going to feel overwhelmed and you're going to quit. So just go level by level. First, you understand at a high level what it does, when you use it, when not to use it, and then after you know how to use it and, and uh, yeah, and when to use it, then you can dive into the reasons why. But just going straight to the proof of why a binary search tree has a, a height that is proportional to the logarithm of that, that that's not necessary. So once someone, say someone has learned, taken these courses from Tim Roughgarden or YouTube or wherever, they know what an array is, they know what programming is, they know what a graph looks like. How do they actually practice this stuff so that they get good enough for an interview? Because it looks like these interviews are really difficult. Yeah, you, so you definitely need to have practice before going to these interviews. And there are, there are resources out there. So one very famous book is called Cracking the Coding Interview. And the solutions there are written in Java. But yeah, you can get the idea of how to apply the algorithms anyway. And then there are online platforms um, that I have used in the past and they are free to use, like HackerRank or LeetCode, where you can write your code and then normally they have test cases and then you can click Submit and it will check that your code uh, returns the output that it's supposed to return, which is very good. Uh, the only drawback of these places is that um, the quality of the solutions is not always very good. And since they are public, you will need to go to the like comments section, let's say, find the solution for the programming language that you want, and then hope that the guy wrote uh, a good solution and also that the code is understandable. Because the main, the main thing is that these platforms are not only used by people who want to pass programming interviews, they are also used by people who are preparing for mm, competitive programming. So there are competitions also about these sort of things. And the code that you write for these competitions is not the same that you would write in an interview or even working because you're very limited in time. Uh, so you need to make sure that you're not typing extra characters, which makes your code very hard to read because the variables are named like I, X, Y, Z. Uh, so it's very, it, that if you do that in an interview, uh, you are rejected completely because that uh, code is not readable. So for so, a company, it's more about having readable code instead of having concise code yeah so even for you or for for any developer one of the things that you have to do and, and this is something i mentioned in the beginning is to write code that is easy to read because and there are studies um, that that show that most of the time as a developer is going to be spent reading code not writing code so you need to make sure that it's easy to read and in the in these competitions you don't care about readability because it's code that you only write once and use once and then you throw it and you don't care. So the, the incentives there 
are completely different. You need to write everything as concise as possible. So if you go to lead code, for example, and you try to find solutions, sometimes you will have to spend extra time uh, trying to figure out what the person who wrote the solution wanted to do. And you may end up getting bad habits, uh, like those I described using very short and bad variable names and all that. Other than that, these platforms are absolutely what you want to use because they are free and you can test your code. So they are a very good training uh, platform, yes. Mm, I see. Sergio, how do you actually get an interview? Because I would say that a lot of people at one time are trying to get into Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple and Google, whatever, Netflix. How do you actually get an interview, especially when you don't have a degree? How do you get a referral? Yeah, those are very good questions. So... I can tell you that these companies are always hiring normally. So the day I joined Amazon, uh, it, this was in a small city in England, but 24 other people joined the same day and only in the, in the engineering department. So these people are hiring all the time. But what you could do, ideally you get a referral either from a friend, uh, you can check on LinkedIn who you have in your network that knows someone, uh, these companies, or maybe if one of your friends is there. Otherwise, if you don't have a degree, the, the other thing that you have to do is build a portfolio. So realistically speaking, it's a bit hard to get your first job if you have no experience um, and no degree to one of these companies. But what you can do, uh, in, and it's kind of what I did, is you go to another company to get enough experience so that if you submit your CV, they will look at it. And also once you get started in this world of programming, you can start networking you will meet someone who will be at these companies. And this this actually this is what happened to me. And then they can refer you. So when I was working um, in the first company doing part-time development, one of my friends there, he got a job um, at Amazon. And then he referred me. Mm. So that's, that's the easiest way. The more experience you have in this industry, the easier it's going to be. And just to give you an idea, uh, on LinkedIn, when once you have a few years of experience, you may even get contacted by these companies. And after you join one of these companies, you're going to get bombarded by recruiters. It's going to be crazy. The amount of recruiters are going to be um, DMing you, offering you jobs. And that's why I, I also think it's a very good idea. But to get the first one, um, you need you need to, I, I would recommend you build a portfolio of projects so that you can get uh, in, one, in, a, in a company, any company pretty much, there you get more coding experience and also in your CV it's going to look like somebody approved you as a developer so that they hired you, they are paying you to write code so you know how to write some code. And from there you can try to ap uh, apply directly or just start networking until you find someone who can refer you. So what kind of project should someone build? Like, uh, Can you just give us some examples? Like, What does that look like? Yeah, so this, um, this obviously depends on the type of programming you want to do. If you want to do front-end stuff, so this is the way websites look, let's say, uh, you're going to have to do something that is related to that using the technologies that you would use um, on the job. For example, if you want to be a I don't know, React.js developer, you need to know HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and then that particular framework, which is like a bunch of tools that make it easier to to create front-end applications. And then what you build, it's pretty much, I mean, it's not irrelevant, but it's not super important. As in, they will look at the code and they, they will look, well, just the fact that you are building stuff is already something very impressive because most people don't. 
or people maybe they start following a YouTube tutorial and everything they do is just copy paste, which doesn't really tell you a lot other than that that person can copy paste. So you could just go to YouTube, find ideas, like you could create a clone of Twitter, uh, like the user interface, not the, the whole backend. And then you can add your own twist to it. Or just go to the, the service you, you use on a daily basis, like Instagram, Twitter, Gumroad, if you're selling stuff there, and just try to clone them. And that will already give you a lot of work. Um, so you're going to have plenty of things to learn there. And then you can share it. And you, one thing you can do is even you can buy a domain name, like my, my I don't know, my Twitter.com, whatever. And then you just share that domain name so that people can see it. And you also have the code. So you can you it's like proof of work that you know what you what you're doing. What you do pretty much doesn't matter as much as the fact that you are doing it and you're learning. Uh, so you could make like Twitter without censorship. <laughs> My Twitter, yeah. We don't delete your account for saying stuff we don't like. Right, right. That's super cool. So what should someone keep in mind for the actual interview process? Because I've heard a lot of weird stuff about tech interviews. Like I know that I, I read Zero to One by Peter Thiel. And he mentions that he rejects anyone who comes wearing a suit. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a joke around, like, uh, distrust any developer who is, who is wearing a suit. Um, <laughs> so for interviews, I mean, the dress code is, is not important. I mean, you, you cannot look like a bum, but you can dress informally. And if you want to be completely sure, just ask your recruiter or whoever is working in, in HR with you if they have a dress code. And then that, but that part is fine. I mean, some of the engineers that they have met in these companies, they were wearing tracksuits uh, and, and sweatpants and this sort of thing. So they, are, they will not look into the way you look. But things that are very important during the interviews are, as I mentioned earlier, you cannot stay silent because part of the things that we are doing uh, as interviewers is assessing your thinking process and uh, your communication skills. So if you don't speak, there's no way we can assess what you are thinking. And also, um, from an interview, we have to decide whether we would like to work with you and if it would be a good idea to bring you on board. So this type of things, someone who is silent uh, in the corner, he, that person is not going to contribute a lot. So this is something mm. I see, and, and it's very awkward being in an interview. Um, I mean, I have been an interviewee, and I know how stressful it is, but I have also been an interviewer many times, and it's also stressful. And when someone is silent for minutes, uh, that's, that's not good. So, and also if you start speaking, we, we can help you. So it's not, it's not that we are there to destroy you. <laughs> we are trying to assess if you would be a good person uh, to bring to our team. So um, usually people go there, like interviewers go there with a positive attitude. So this is one very common mistake that people uh, make. Yeah, definitely. I've had the same experience. I've interviewed a lot of people in, back when I was a consultant and some people will just be silent. So, you, so you, you're trying to assess how they're thinking. For example, if I ask you, how many balloons can fill in this room so i want to know how you're thinking i want you to i want to know how you are computing the volume of the room then computing the average volume of a balloon etc so sometimes people will just think in their head and try and give you a number which really doesn't tell me anything as an interviewer because i just wanted to see how you think so i think that's what you're trying to get at Right. Yeah. So it's, I mean, you, you, at the end of the day, you would have to provide, um, code that works, but it's also about the process. So that, that's one thing that people do wrong. And, and I completely, um, understand what you were saying because yeah, I have, I have experienced that. Another thing from a non-technical perspective, let's say, is asking for feedback at the end. Um, I, this has happened to me many times. Um, mm -hmm. even by, 
not by email, but someone found me on LinkedIn and that person was asking me via LinkedIn how he did on the interview. Uh, don't do this. This is very bad. Uh, first of all, usually there are company policies uh, that prevent interviewers uh, from doing this. So we can, even if we want to, we cannot give you the feedback. So that, that was the first thing. But the second is that it gives a very bad impression because it shows that you're not, mm, you have in, a lot of insecurity and you are unable to assess how well you did. So those two are, are yeah. very bad. They are kind of red flags. So just don't ask for feedback at the end. And when you get home or well now with Corona, you, you will do everything online. Just, just get a notebook or something and write your thoughts about that. And then a few days later, try to think uh, through them and see what you can improve for the next time. But don't ask for feedback. That's very interesting. I never thought about that before. I've never actually had someone who asked for feedback after an interview, so that's new. What are the other common common interview mistakes that people make? Yeah, so the, there would be too many to to list here, but I can give you like the main one. Um, yeah, those, I would say it's, there are two, but they are they're super connected. Which is just jumping straight to code. So I ask you a question, and then. If you go straight to the whiteboard or if you start typing code, that's already a very bad sign because these questions, normally they are designed to be vague. So you need to ask questions, ask clarifying questions. So the thing is, if you get a job at one of these companies and you get paid six figures, mm -hmm. I can guarantee you that they are not paying you six figures to type fast. They are paying you six figures to think before you type. So when they give you a question, First, you need to come up with a high-level solution, like what are the series of steps that I'm going to go through to solve this problem? Then you analyze the solution, like what's the complexity in terms of space, like how, let's say, how long is it going to take uh, for this code to run? How much memory does it need? And then if it's slow, or then you would have to ask the interviewer, is this good enough? Or maybe there are extra constraints. So if you're writing code that is supposed to run um, on a microprocessor, for example, the, the memory is very limited. So maybe you are okay with an algorithm that is slower, but it doesn't use that much memory. So you would have to ask the interviewer, for example, and then once all this is okay, then you go and write the code. And then after you write the code, you start testing the code to make sure you didn't miss anything. So this is one thing you have to think first, and then you also have to come up with edge cases. Because as I said, these questions are very vague. So if I tell you, for example, one, one question that is very common, um, write a function to, that takes two words, and then it returns true if the words are anagrams. So an anagram or two words are anagram. If you can take the letters of one word, rearrange them, and then you get the other word. For example, the word dog and god, they are anagrams because you can change the letters. You can take dog, and then you change the D and the G, and you get god. Okay, so it looks like a very simple question, but it's not. I mean, it's not super well defined. So, are two words anagrams if the one of them is uppercase and the other one has the same letter but lowercase? Um, what if they contain spaces or symbols like apostrophes and hyphens and all that? What's the encoding that you want to use? Is it going to be ASCII only? Because if it's ASCII only uh, and the letters are uh, all lowercase, you can use simply a list. If it's not, then you need to use, um, it depends on the language, but probably some sort of string class. And that means there's more overhead, more memory. So uh, as you can see, and I'm just 
um, improvising here. There are many things to discuss before you start writing the, the actual code. But all these things, mm. they will make sure for once that you're solving the problem that you have to solve because in real conditions, when they give you a problem, you are going to have to think through all these situations. So it's not something that they make in the interviews just because they are bored. Uh, this is the way you work. You have to think through all the things that can go wrong, etc. And yeah, this shows already attention to the detail, which is something you also want because as you can imagine, so when I was working at Amazon, I for I signed an NDA, so I cannot really reveal how many Alexas were there in the world at that time, but it was in the millions. So whatever you do is going to affect a lot of people. So you need to pay a lot of attention to everything. And these type of things, this thinking before coding, uh, this already shows that you are paying a lot of attention. And this is a very this is a green flag uh, completely. And missing this is a red flag. So basically, it's almost rejection right if you if you go straight to the board i see i can think of several ways to solve that problem the one you mentioned about anagrams is there like good solution and bad solution for example i could say sort the word to become alphabetical and then compare the results if you get the same result then they're anagrams or we could say count which how many a's there are how many b's there are how many c's there are and then compare if we have the same thing or not so do we have say bad code and good code that both produce the same solution yeah so in this case these two are very good solutions to this problem and for example, here is where the analyzing part comes because the first one that you said, sorting, sorting in general is a problem that can be solved in in technical terms. Is if a if a string has n characters, the complexity is n times the logarithm of n. So that this is kind of the time or how the time will scale as you make the string longer. The other where you count. Uh, the complexity can be linear, so it can be only n. So you can see already that the sorting phase is going to be slower than the other one. But at the same time, if you have to count all the letters, this means you need extra memory because you have to count all this. And while, while you're sorting, in general, depending on the algorithm, but in general, you don't need this extra memory. So it's not that one is bad and the other is good, it's that there are trade-offs. And this is what I discussed earlier with the microprocessor example. Are we okay with a solution that is slower but consumes less memory? Or do we want something that is very fast? And that's the thing, you need to discuss this. Um, without more context, technically, you kind of really you don't really know which one is the best because you don't have the other constraints to say this one is better. But this is the way you will go about solving the problem. You come up with one solution, you come up with the other, maybe, and then you discuss them. And it, this is why the communication skills are so important. Mm. Because you need to discuss both of them. And then in the end, the interviewer may tell you, just take this one. Or the interviewer may tell you, just do whatever you believe is best. And then you say, okay, I'm going to assume that this, 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 and then I'm going to do this. And then you write the code. I see. So it's about getting all the information out from the interviewer before you actually start coding, because otherwise it could be like you assume something, but that's not the case. So you might think that capital A and small a should be equal, but they might not think the same way. Exactly. You need to know exactly the problem that you are going to solve, not the problem that you are solving. So in your mind, I mean, you have to make sure that you are aligned with the, with the interviewer. I see. And you also recommended using Python instead of, um, say, a language like C because you said it has shorter code. Yeah, so when I got the job at Amazon, I used C++ because at that time I did not know Python. But to create 
for example, you, you were mentioning that one of the approaches was to count the letters. Mm -hmm. So there is a data structure called hash table, or in, in Python it's, it's called dictionary. To create a dictionary in Python, it's literally three lines of code. Sorry, f three characters. So the equal sign, and then the curly braces, and you close them, and then you put the name that you want for the variable. In C++, it can be 30 characters easily, because you need to to write the types and everything. So if you are short on time, this is horrible. Python is very good. Just for this, it, it will be very good. And then it, it, it also has more syntax that makes things like traversing arrays and, and this sort of thing very, very compact. So it's, it's, a, it's a very good idea to use Python in interviews. Ah, so just to troll the interviewer, you might want to use something like Lisp. Fill <laughs> 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 the both parentheses. <laughs> no, 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 that, that will not happen. Um, unless you are applying for one of these jobs. No, no, with Python and maybe Java you are, or JavaScript, you will be fine 99% of the time. I see. So let's say that they ask you a question and you can't solve it. So how do you ask for help without making it seem like you don't know anything? Yep. So, no, at some point you're going to have to be honest and say, look, I'm blocked here. Just try to explain your thought process because that's, um, that's what they call the rubber duck technique. So by explaining it to the interviewer, maybe you find out where the problem is so you could get inspired. Otherwise, just try to clearly explain the problem, what you have tried. I mean, if you, if you get completely blanked and there's nothing you can say, uh, it's going to look back asking for help. But if you have tried a couple of solutions um, or approaches and they don't work, just restate them and say, I got stuck here at this point because I don't know if this or that is correct. Um, what happens many times also is that you will be nervous, mm -hmm. uh, you will be thinking about the current solution, but the interviewer has seen that question a million times. So they know that the path you are taking is whether it's right or wrong. And if they know that you are going through, um, through the wrong path, they will tell you, hey, what if you tried this or that? So they might not overtly say, this is completely wrong. They will say, what if you try this? Or what about this? Or what about that? So they are usually kind of proactive. Uh, they see if you are stuck, uh, they will try to help you. I see. So they're not like trying to mess you up like they do in finance. <laughs> they're helpful. I mean, 99% 90, of the people I have seen intervene, they are very nice and they try to help you. Of course, there are psychopaths out there, but they are everywhere. Uh, but it's unlikely that you will find one of those. And if you find them, I mean, there's literally nothing you can do. I can tell you that um, I know people who wouldn't hire people in their own teams because some people enjoy torturing others for some reason, I don't know. They, they enjoy doing this, but it's highly unlikely that you will mm, face one of these um, engineers. In general, people are very nice. I see. In my own education of computer science, I noticed that most problems are actually not that difficult to solve. There seems to be like a small set of, say, algorithms and ways to solve a problem. And once you get the hang of them all, you can solve almost every problem with ease. So, for example, efficient sorting, backtracking and things of that sort. So do you have, I, I know that you just, you have a book that's out zero to code and I read a, a version of it before it was published. And I see that you cover quite a bit of that in your book, say backtracking and things like that. Yeah. So in, in this book, what I have um, is the programming concepts. So the, you, you can see the same thing from different uh, levels. So you were talking about algorithms and backtracking and all that as patterns, let's say. Uh, in this book, I have covered the same for programming languages. So people usually 
mm, spend a lot of time asking what's the best language that I can learn, uh, how should I do this and how should I go about that, what if I learn the wrong language and this sort of thing. This is basically nonsense. There are many patterns that are common or concepts that are common to all languages and in my book I have compiled them and then I have shown you how to write that particular, let's say, idea or concept like a function or variables, uh, loops, iterations, all this in Python and also I have code snippets in other languages so that you will see that once you understand the idea uh, the actual way of typing it so that the computer understands it it's it's not that different and then from there you can build more advanced stuff uh, what you were saying about backtracking is something that I have uh, in mind for a, for a more advanced uh, project now I have something in my website that is kind of a summary of what I want to build next but yes once you learn for example about backtracking if you understand the idea that at every step in the algorithm you have some choices and then for every choice you make you will face more choices and if you run out of choices you have to go back, this is kind of the high level pattern, you can solve a lot of problems like from Sudokus uh, to more advanced stuff and by learning these sort of high level patterns uh, you, you can just combine them to solve a lot of problems. Mm. But then the idea itself, so this, this is, I, I was thinking when you were uh, asking this question, I studied aerospace engineering, which sounds like something very hard, and I'm not saying it's not, but you get to study many different branches of sciences, like lots of physics, uh, aerodynamics, fluid dynamics, also a lot of math, and you see that many solutions, conceptually, they're very simple. So I remember that I was kind of disappointed. When I was at uni, I was saying, "This is super simple. I, how, how come we're we're thinking that it's so hard?" But yeah, of course, then implementing it and, and doing that is it's hard. But the concept itself, and it's the same in many programming concepts, they're very simple. Yeah, actually, a lot of tech, you know, what looks difficult is really simple, and sometimes things that look really simple are really complicated. For example, a rocket is not that complex to build. It's just like a way of burning fuel and then propelling it upwards. I mean, I, I could say it's, it's, it's quite tough. I have a degree on that. Uh, th <laughs> there are two things on that that, that we would need to, to discuss. So there is, I don't know if there are terms out there for this, but I call it like natural complexity and then artificial complexity. So natural complexity would be in, this, in the example of the rocket. I mean, you're putting, I think, on a different planet uh, or, or in a satellite, whatever. That's, that's complex. But on top of that, it's the way you go about it. You can make it more complex than it is. Then for coding, it's the same. So some concepts are complex, you know, like some algorithms are harder to understand than, than others. But then the implementation can make it much harder. And for some reason, some developers, not all of them, they somehow are proud of coming up with complex solutions where the real challenge and the real genius is in finding a simple solution to a hard problem. That's that's a magic. And to a certain degree, it sometimes it's hard to to put those two apart, like the natural complexity of the thing that you are dealing with, and then the all extra complexity that for some reason people are adding into into it. Like, whoa, this code is so smart, and then in three months you look back to it and you don't remember anything, and you have to rewrite it because it's it's a mess. It's a form of virtue signaling, isn't it? Where look how smart I am. I'm doing this complex shit. Yeah, or creating that. It's, it's not so... That, that's that's this coming back to the first question you asked me, like what do these companies look for? They don't care about how complex their solution is. And even you as a customer, like when you turn on Netflix or anything, you, you don't ask yourself, I wonder in which programming language they wrote this. You don't care. 
-hmm. it doesn't matter how complex the solution is or how easy it only matters that you're providing the value so some people and it's un I mean it's understandable it's, it's an ego battlefield out there in the tech industry sometimes like many other industries but some people take writing complex solutions for comp for any problem even if, if, if it's for a simple problem the, <clears throat> the real skills come when you can solve something very hard in a very simple way that's that's where the real skills are the, and that's very hard to achieve I see so for all of this how much can you actually expect to be paid for like say a fang job let's say you just join and after a couple of years how much would your average compensation look like yep so this um, this really depends on the country you're going to be your compensation is going to be top no matter where you are so that's for sure so in the US for example I know a guy with a couple of years of experience who got a total compensation so this would be base salary plus signing bonus plus talk plus all the, any other bonuses he had of $300,000 per year in Seattle and uh, I know that fa Facebook and other companies are famous for paying even more so this depends if you move to Europe for example the salaries are not that high but the compensation is top and I don't know how this could look like in India, but I can tell you that even especially the, the longer you stay there, you get more stock. And then if the stock tends to go up, uh, you can get very, very good uh, money. So money wise, it's, it's a good choice. I see. What do you think of companies that have been around for a while that are not typically thought of as sexy fan companies like, say, Oracle and things like that, you know, the, the older generation of tech companies? Uh, these are fine, but I, I tend to... So one of the ways in the past that I have looked at these companies, sort of uh, heuristic, is uh, where are people moving to and from where they are coming from. So I tend to meet people who go from, let's say, Oracle to eBay or Amazon, more people that go that way than the other way. Uh, it could be just that they are in vogue right now and everyone wants to join a fang and it's not fashionable, fashionable anymore. It's true that the technologies are older. Maybe the code is messier. I don't know. I have a look at it. But yeah, I mean, it, this could even be something positive in that if not that many people are applying, uh, it could be easier to get the job. So for example, one a friend of mine, he I just, um, I've been coaching him for some time and uh, he got a job, uh, a job offer from Amazon. Uh, he rejected it because his current job, um, when he went back to his manager, he got a counter offer. So now he's passing the six figures in Europe, which is uh, not that common. Uh, but he had been applied to other places. Like one of the places is uh, Oracle. And he said that the interview process was extremely easy compared to the interview process um, at Amazon. So maybe the fact that they are not so popular... Uh, it's good for you if you don't have a lot of experience because you can join them. And then from there, just jump to, to other companies. I see. So in your opinion, is working at these fan companies actually worth it or not? I mean, I've heard that these, these guys work 19, 20 hours per day. I, I don't know how true it is. I've also heard that if you can't get promoted in, at Facebook, say every two years, they fire you. So it, it seems like a very hectic work environment. Is that true or is it like a myth? I guess it maybe depends on the on the country and the company. I never had this impression at Amazon. People were not working longer hours than in a different company. And I know there were myths of um, AWS developers going to the bathroom to cry. Uh, I don't know if this. <laughs> <laughs> I've never met any, and this was kind of a kind of a joke there um, in our team. I don't know. I think so. If 
if you were to put it like this way, if I had a son now and if he was like 20, would I recommend him to go to one of these companies? Yes, absolutely. So it will give you great compensation. I just mentioned it in the beginning, great working environment, uh, smart people. So you, you will network also. And then it's, it's going to be a very good, um, something very good to have in your CV. So it's definitely recommended. Then from there, what people usually do is every two, three years, they jump to another of those companies and then they get a 15, 20, 25% uh, raise or even more, it depends. And then some people go to smaller companies, startups, uh, or just plainly smaller than, I mean, Amazon is huge and Facebook is the same. So they go to smaller companies where they have more freedom uh, to do whatever they, was, that they want because uh, these bigger companies, they are a bit, they are heavy on processes normally. And then in smaller companies, you have more responsibility. Um, whatever you do has more impact in that way. But mm -hmm. you may end up doing a lot of stuff that you don't even want to do because in a small company, there are fewer people and they have to do all the work. So uh, some people like this, others don't like it that much. Um, so you may end up learning faster. The pay usually might be uh, not as good, but if you if you're super lucky and you land in, an, in a unicorn, then the stock might make you very rich, but it's unlikely to happen. If you go to one of the big companies, Um, you know that your work has impact because Alexa has millions of users. Uh, Facebook and Google, they have billions of users. So potentially everything you do has a huge impact. But <laughs> was that Alexa in the background? <laughs> yeah, sorry, that was my <laughs> that was my Alexa. Now Amazon knows everything that we've been talking about. Um, yeah, so as I was saying, I have to ask you. I have to ahead. ask you. Go ahead. Sorry. No, the big companies have, they they have their those pluses. So it's it's already like a very well known place, and people will like you, and it's like a seal of approval. Uh, smaller companies, you will do a lot of stuff. Um, it's also easier to get. But unless you've mm, landed in a unicorn, then it, I think it makes more sense to, or you really, really like the work there, to try to get um, at least once one of those uh, companies on your CV. I see. So now, now that Alexa came up, this is something I've been meaning to ask you from a long time. But sure. you were developing Alexa for a while. And yep. tell me, like, blink twice if you can't answer this question, but is Alexa <laughs> spying on us or not? <laughs> um, I mean, I left there a couple of years ago, so until back then, no. The way Alexa works, and I hope it will not wake up again, <laughs> is that um, there is a system that is technically, it's, it's listening to everything you say continuously. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> that system is not, even if you disconnect uh, Alexa from the internet, that is working. Because the only thing that the system does is um, wait for the wake word. So that word is the one that activates Alexa. Then when it has a blue ring, everything you hear, it will be sent to Amazon. But um, as a developer there, I can tell you that I was not aware of a system that is continuously listening to everything you say and storing it and analyzing it. No, the way it works is even if you unplug it, it will listen for that word and then when it hears the word, it will activate hear what, what you have to say and send the mp3 to amazon and then they do whatever they have to do that's interesting so it's not constantly sending data to amazon and just like listening for one word and once it's activated then it sends data exactly a different thing is that it may hear something very so there are three wake words um alexa echo and computer so if you say something that is similar or if you're playing something on your tv and someone says something similar to alexa it will wake up 
and then whatever you save, it will be sent to Amazon. That's different. But no, uh, by default, it's only waiting for that word, and then it starts recording and sending information. I think this can be verified as well, right? Like you can have like a packet monitor and connect it between the internet and Alexa and then see what is actually going through. You could try that, but I can tell you I was on the other side and I could verify that the only things that people were sending were uh, what they wanted to send. Like no one, unless they have like a secret silo of developers and they have access to something I didn't have access. Um, no, you, you don't need to, to be worried um, about this. Unless, as I said before, it hears something that is similar to the wake words and then it starts recording because it, it thinks that you said the wake word. So I had an Alexa for one week. I got it. As, I got it as a gift from someone, and the main I found myself basically using Alexa to, for like fun, like asking Alexa to suck my dick and things like that. You know, <laughs> to see how it would respond. <laughs> I bet that's a big ass search query on Alexa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not the only one. <laughs> so it's a funny device, you know. But then I removed it because I just I just don't trust Amazon enough. I just don't. Like maybe it doesn't record me now, but who knows? Five years from now, Jeff Bezos wants to figure out what I'm doing, and then he's just uh, like, yeah, maybe I don't know. I think for now, yeah, of course, everything you send to Amazon is going to be linked to... So Alexa is linked to your Amazon account. Mm-hmm. Therefore, if you start talking about, I don't know, some uh, some type of music, let's say, when you go to Amazon.com, you are likely to see ads related to this. Uh, other than this, right now, I don't think they are doing... Um, as you said, maybe in five years, who knows, but uh, if, if they try to make something, it's going to be related to make more money out of you, either selling you on Amazon... Or maybe one day, I don't know, they will they will have ads on the on the actual platform. Like now you have ads on YouTube. Maybe you talk to Alexa one day and they will reply with an ad somewhere in, in between the answer at some point. That would suck. Yeah, that would really suck. Uh, what does a job at Amazon or these fan companies actually look like? Are you coding all day or what does what is the experience like? What does the work involve? Yep, so there are usually in the morning you have stand-up, so it's a meeting where everyone stands up and then you go about the things that you have been working on, um, usually that day, or either what you did the previous day or, or what you are going to do that day. Uh, that's this is a common practice in the industry, so that people, if you get stuck, they can help you, or if, they are, if there are updates, you know exactly what's going on. And then usually there are many meetings, um, Coding is is a big chunk of what you do, but it's not everything. Because as I said, when you have to design a big project, you need to first, in advance, gather all the requirements. You need to decide what... Are, it's, it's basically like an interview question, but on, a, on the real world. You have to come up with different solutions. You have to write a document. So at Amazon, it's, uh, it's very well known that before any big project or relatively big project you need to write a document with all the requirements and the different approaches you took and the pros and cons of each so this can take you a while and i'm talking about like days and then you need to set up a meeting with the rest of the team you go about it you discuss it maybe you bring people from other teams so you have to talk to people from other teams a lot and then this can go for a few rounds and then when everyone is happy if you are leading the project, you break all those, all this, like the decision into small tasks, and then either you do these tasks or you pass them to um, other engineers, usually more junior engineers, and then it's when you write the code. 
but then it's the same because it's kind of the same thing at smaller scale. You have the task, you need to figure out a solution for a simple task. You don't have to, you, you don't need to write a design document, but still you have to write the code. You have to write tests because if you don't write tests, they will not accept your changes. Uh, they are very strict about it. Usually the people in your team are going to be like this. And then you have to wait for other people to review your changes just to make sure you didn't uh, do something wrong. And then the changes will emerge and eventually people will be able to use it on Alexa. You will also have to review other people's changes. So it's a lot of reading and writing and then also about writing code, of course. But it has this human um, aspect that people think that developers don't talk a lot. You need to talk to a bunch of different people. Even if it's just to gather all the requirements, you have to talk to a lot of people. It's, it's a fun job. Interesting. Yeah, I, I would not expect that. You know, one would think that you're just sitting on your computer and coding all day, but looks like there are more human elements to it. Yeah, and, and as I said, coding is like only one part of this. Uh, they don't pay you to type or they don't pay you to type fast. They pay you to think. And then once you have the solution, then you type it. So it's, it's just one part of the process. Hmm. Overall, this has been a super insightful conversation, Sergio. I've learned quite a bit from you, and I hope it's been super insightful for everyone listening as well. Is there something I missed, though, something that people should know before they try to get a job at FANG, or have we covered it all? No, I think those are the fundamentals, and I would say um, people should focus on those uh, before trying to move to more advanced staff, so like learning the fundamentals of programming, data science, uh, sorry, the, um, data structures, computer science, etc., and then the um, strategy to get the job. And that's it, and just practice. I think the best starting resource would be your book, right? Because I, I read the book in its entirety before you released it, and it was super interesting. And I'm someone who is almost through with a computer science degree. And even for me, it was... When I learned, everything was up and down. I was looking for the right resources here and there. And sometimes I would figure out that to do one course, I need to do like two prerequisites. Your book kind of tells people what roadmap to take and it basically teaches everyone the basics. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I know how tough learning to code is and also getting a job in a fan company, especially if you have to do everything on your own. Because uh, as you said, there's a lot of material out there you don't know where to start, you feel overwhelmed. And I know this because this happened to me a few years ago. So uh, in the book, I have compiled everything I learned in those, I don't know, more than 10 years that I have been programming. And from the perspective of someone who is learning programming, and also from the perspective of someone who is teaching programming, because I have helped a lot of people. So you will learn the fundamentals of programming. You will learn a lot of Python, data structures, algorithms, databases, how to write clean code, how to test the code. And then I have a series of bonuses where I teach you how to get started in, in all the different, um, the main specializations. So I mentioned, for example, front-end at the beginning with HTML, CSS, but I also have back-end, I have mobile development, blockchain, of course, and then how to build your portfolio to get your first job, how to get promoted, because we haven't discussed like how to get the, the big pay jumps, uh, which really come from promotions. And in the book, you can see how to do all this, plus more details for fun-specific preparation. Are you going to change the name to Mang now because Facebook is now meta? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if the stock, yeah, if they change the stock tick, it will be Mang now. I hear Netflix's stock is on a decline, so maybe it will be out. Like maybe we'll just have 
Amg. Or like Mag. <laughs> Mag, Mag, that would be fun. Uh, I think everything is down now, so probably they will keep it anyway. <laughs> I see. All right, Sergio, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, so my blog is teach, uh, yourcodingteacher.com. <laughs> See, he's, he's working so hard on teachersalifcrypto.com that he's forgotten his own blog name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I've been working on the, on the privacy coins blog for, for a while now, so yeah, it came to my mind. It's going to be released in a week for people who are interested in learning. Go ahead, sorry for cutting you off. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, absolutely. So before, in, before the end of the month, uh, you will have it out. Yeah, so my blog is um, yourcodingteacher.com and then you can also find me on Twitter and the hashtag is at codinglanguages. Are you on Instagram, Telegram, anywhere else? Yes, uh, you can find me also on Instagram. It's at codinglanguages. That account, um, I must say, to be honest, is completely automated, so I don't touch it and it's a clone of my Twitter account. Maybe one day I will explain how I do it because it's, it's pretty cool from a technical perspective. It just takes the screenshots, uh, it posts them every, every now and then, so pretty cool. And also I have a Telegram um, channel, so if you go to my Twitter account, you can find links to all these uh, resources. All right, Sergio. So great conversation. I learned a lot. Thank you so much for being on the show. And have a great day, Sergio. We'll see you yes. maybe in a future episode where we talk about how to get promoted or things like that. Sure, it was very fun. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. Bye-bye.